Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. This week's heat wave is packing a punch. Ontario's Greenbelt housing plan may not fly. The federal Tories once again lead in the polls. Challenging times for the Hamilton Burlington SPCA. And local tourist attractions are wiping out your wallet. The JMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. We're sounding the alarm today. Under a heat warning once again, hot, hazy, humid, maybe a chance of showers or a thunderstorm later on today. High up to 30, feeling closer to 40 with the humidity. Yikes, right now it's 26 in Hamilton. It already feels like 30. So the question is, now we know it's hot. We know it is stifling hot outside. How long is this heat going to stick around? Let's ask our next guest. His name is Doug Gillum. He's a meteorologist with the Weather Network and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Doug, good morning. How are you? Hey, good morning. Doing well. Trying to stay cool on this muggy morning. Easier said than done. First off, where is this heat coming from? Uh, It's coming from where it usually does, from the southern United States. You've got a southwest flow of air bringing uh, warm and especially humid but air up from the you know the southern US the Gulf of Mexico it's quite a contrast to what we have seen over the past month you know we we got some heat earlier in the summer but we had some heat in April and then we had some heat to wrap up the month of May and we were into the lower 30s the first two days uh, the second day of June and then we haven't hit 30 degrees since so you know it's not that unusual to have some 30 degree weather during July it's a kind of a seasonable heat wave but it's it's, it's a contrast to what we've seen during the past month. We've heard that this year's El Nino is particularly warmer than in past years, and that's having an impact. Is that true? That's right. So El Nino, we're looking at ocean water temperatures in the Pacific Ocean, specifically near the equator to the west of South America. And those temperatures have dramatically warmed over the past uh, several months. We were in La Nina for three years, which are colder than normal ocean water temperatures in that region. And when you have a rapid onset of El Nino, typically we see the pattern we're seeing this year, where it's we have the dip in the jet stream in the Great Lakes region that tends to limit the heat. It tends to bring more showers and thunderstorms. So, you know, it's not that we're not having summer this year and we're having a few days of a heat wave uh, this week, but we're not seeing the persistent, relentless heat. 2020, we hit 39 uh, days in a row as we kicked off the month of July, um, starting on the second day of the month, nine days of 30 degree weather. This time we're only seeing three days. So this is the more typical heat wave. Uh, it's, you know, it's miserable. It's muggy out there, but it's not going to last all that long. So how long is it going to last? Is tomorrow the last day? Yes. And again, temperatures are just barely topping 30 degrees. You know, sometimes we can get excessive heat, 34, 35. We're not seeing that. It's not record-breaking heat. Uh, but today and tomorrow, uh, it'll continue to be hot and tomorrow will be very humid. But a cold front will be approaching late in the day. And that'll give us the threat for thunderstorms uh, at the end of the day. Uh, and then that will be it for the heat wave. On Friday, you will notice the difference. Uh, it's not turning cold, but it'll be more seasonal. And uh, you'll certainly notice the lower humidity, a lot more comfortable for Friday and into the weekend. And at this point, we don't see any persistent heat in sight. We're going to have a lot of comfortable weather during July. 
Well, that's, uh, that's some pretty good news. Doug Gillum is our guest. He is a meteorologist with the Weather Network. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Uh, you mentioned this being a uh, kind of a mini heat wave, three days or so. I- is that somewhat of a normal thing through the summer, or are we expected to see sometime in August um, maybe a greater stretch or a longer stretch of this kind of weather? Well, there's certainly a risk that we could have another period of two or two of, of heat and humidity uh, where, you know, we top 30 degrees, um, you know, have a, you know, a stretch of hot weather. But overall, you know, our theme for this summer was a come and go summer. So I don't think we're ever going to lock into a persistent hot pattern. I think we're going to continue to get these cool shots, uh, periods of more refreshing weather. Uh, again, nothing like what we saw a few summers ago where 30 degree temperatures were the normal uh, we typically see five 30-degree days in July, so I think we're going to be probably pretty close to that. Um, getting way ahead of myself here, but typically with an on with this type of global pattern, uh, September is warmer than normal. So while we're going to have these shots of cooler weather, less heat than we often see during the heart of summer, it doesn't mean fall's coming early. It just means that we're going to have a more comfortable summer, but one that may linger. Uh, well into the start of fall. Interesting stuff. Doug, we can't complain about that, and uh, we always love having you on. Until the next time, have a great one. Hey, my pleasure. Stay cool. Have a great day. You too. Doug Gillamy is a meteorologist with the Weather Network, so there you have it. Sometime later on tomorrow, we're going to get that cold front in, maybe some shower activity. Things will thankfully cool off. It has been, uh, you know, a bit of a struggle over the last couple of days, especially for those of you with respiratory issues. We've had the smoky air already. Now we're getting the hot and humid conditions. Hard to breathe out there. And for anyone who is working outside today, ah, take a deep breath and be safe. That's all I can say on that. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Really, all the songs apply. Uh, Hot, hot, hot. The heat is on. Heat wave. The heat warning is continuing here in the city of Hamilton. It is uh, hot. It is humid. Uh, Highs into the 30s. The humidity will make it feel like the upper 30s. It is downright hot. And here to talk about how you can beat the heat is Jane Morell. Jane is the supervisor of health hazards and vector-borne disease program at the city of Hamilton and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Jane, good morning. How are you? Good morning. How are you? I'm good. I'm I'm trying to beat the heat. It is uh, it is difficult in this uh, in this kind of uh, stretch of weather. That is for sure. How is the city uh, helping residents beat the heat this week? So the city does offer various cool down locations, uh, which include libraries, rec centers, um, and all city operated uh, indoor and outdoor pools have free swim during heat alert. So these are going to be busy places over the next few days. Absolutely. For pools in indoor and outdoor, is it free of charge when there is a heat warning? Yes, correct. Okay. A heat warning and, and an extended heat warning. Now, as you know, there is a shortage of lifeguards. Is the city well equipped to handle more people in and around pools? Uh, not my department, uh, <laughs> but I would assume that they are, are appropriately staffed. We do give a heads up to all our community partners that take uh, that offer these services to let them know when the heat is coming so that they can staff appropriately. So if someone can't get to a pool or a library or a rec center, how should they be beating uh, the heat? How can they reduce their risk of you know heat-related illness? So obviously limiting physical activity, Uh, keeping your blinds closed to reduce the sunlight shining in, drinking plenty of water, um, 
if you live in a multi-dwelling uh, unit, your landlord might be pro- providing a cool space within the building. So to check on that. Um, and also, um, you can take a cool bath or a shower also to cool yourself off. Is there anything new that the city is doing this year as opposed to past years? Uh, we are working more closely with landlords, like I said, to help encourage them to provide those cool spaces uh, for residents that don't have access to air conditioning. What's the response been like? I'm sure positive. Yes, very positive so far. In regards to how long this current heat wave is going to persist, is there any guesstimate on, on how long it's going to go? Uh, from what I can predict right now, because again, weather changes, it looks like it'll be a two-day event, uh, possibly ending, um, we would cancel uh, for Thursday. And in regards to those who work outside, a different sort of challenge, I guess the, the same rules would apply in terms of, you know, trying to seek shade when you can, drink plenty of fluids, and maybe even more so because they're outside all day. Yes, correct. And also wearing light-colored, loose-fitting clothing, too. Uh, Wearing a hat, possibly using an umbrella when you can. Yeah, I'm not sure any roofer is going to be using umbrellas, but uh, I'm sure sure they get the point. (laughs) Uh, Is there there anything else our listeners should know? Uh, They can visit uh, hamilton.ca backslash heat uh, for more information on those cooling locations, as well as other um, ways to reduce your, your risk. All right. Great tips from the city of Hamilton. Jane, really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks again to Jane Morell, Supervisor of Health Hazards and Vector Borne Disease Program at the city of Hamilton. A lot of great tips and a lot of great resourceful information online at Hamilton.ca. And I would suggest, you know, common sense. You know, it's going to be hot out. It's already 24. It's going to go up to 30. It's going to feel nearly 40 this afternoon. If you don't have to be out, especially for an extended period of time, Um, try not to be. And if you are, take some fluids, hang out in the shade. If you are, you know, hanging out outside, try to get to a rec center or a library or shopping center. Uh, There is a, for anyone who's, who's a big fan of the show Married with Children, one of the most iconic scenes in that show is there's a heat wave going on and Al Bundy takes his family to the grocery store and they hang out. I mean, lawn chairs and all in the frozen food section. Now, I wouldn't recommend that at your local grocery store, but what a uh, what an idea that was. I'm sure it worked and it did certainly for the show. It was a funny one. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Unequivocally, we won't touch the green belt. Uh, unlike other governments that don't listen to people, I've heard it loud and clear. People don't want me touching the green belt. We won't touch the green belt. We'll figure out uh, how to clean up this housing mess and this housing crisis that we're facing in a different fashion. But all my friends, I listen to you. You don't want me touching the green belt. We won't touch the green belt. The Ontario government may see its plan for the green belt derailed by the federal government. In a Global News exclusive, Premier Ford's controversial plan to build homes on the Greenbelt has hit a roadblock, and it is Ottawa that is standing in the way. Here to tell us about it is Colin DeMello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News, who joins us now on GMH. Colin, welcome back to the show. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So what's going on with this story? Why is Ottawa standing in the way of what the province is trying to do? 
Well, Ottawa hasn't made any official moves just yet, but Ottawa has uh, something called the Species at Risk Act, which really, by law, gives it the authority and really the legal obligation to protect endangered species all across the country. And so when the Ford government announced that uh, 7,400 acres of the Greenbelt were going to be removed for housing development, it really caught the attention of the federal government. Uh, Sometime in March... The Minister of Environment in in Ottawa had been given a list of 29 species at risk that call the Greenbelt home, specifically those 7,400 acres. Uh, Those species at risk can, you know, uh, vary from from birds to uh, animals like um, uh, blanding turtles, insects, etc. And, you know, now the question is, why does the federal government want this list? Why Why do they compile this list in the first place? And do they actually intend to act? Because we have seen in the past, you know, the Ford government has this Highway 413 that they want to build that goes all across um, Mississauga, the 905, and goes into, into Vaughan. Uh, this highway cuts through farmers' fields and some greenbelt lands as well. And it has been delayed since for about a couple of years now because the federal government has, you know, put in place a bunch of um, environmental assessments in terms of, you know, what kind of impacts will this highway have on species at risk. So the feds have the power to delay projects and perhaps even permanently scuttle them. We just don't know exactly what the federal government's plans are, but we now know that there are species at risk. It's caught the attention of the federal government. And they have the ability, if they choose to, to step in and at least delay the project, if not scrap the um, the Greenbelt reopening altogether. And and this would be scrapped because there's a certain timeline. There's a clock ticking in terms of developers on when they can start construction on these Greenbelt lands. Tell us about that. Yeah, the Ford government has given uh, these developers a timeline that they need to be able to start construction or else the the Greenbelt lands revert back. Um, I can't recall off the top of my head exactly what the timeline is, but it's about it's about six months to a year or so that they have to start showing some development um, and start getting you know that project built. The problem with some of these Greenbelt lands is one land in uh, north of Toronto in King City that you know the, the mayor of the King Township says these lands are not really serviceable. By, by that they mean, you know, it's the sewer infrastructure that you need to extend these lands. And in some cases, it, it might be too much to accommodate to be able to build all the sewer infrastructure out. So some of the local municipalities are saying, look, this is useless to us. You might think that developers will want to build there, but, you know, good luck trying to get rid of your waste because, Uh, We can't build the sewer infrastructure there. So regardless of whether the developers want to move forward or whether the province wants to move forward, you know, there might be a couple of different um, elements here that are completely locking the province's plan. One, from the municipal perspective, they may not be able to bring the sewage infrastructure to these lands. And two, the federal government might say, well, anything that happens on these lands, if they endanger species at risk, the federal government might have a say about it. So, the, you know, the, the Greenbelt proposals um, by the provincial government, even though they've removed these lands from the Greenbelt and swapped in another 9,500 acres in, 
uh, at this point, it, it is a bit of a stalemate in terms of what happens with it next, because we don't know whether that development can go forward. And we don't know whether the federal government is going to have some say here. We have 90 more seconds with Colin DeMello, Queens Park Bureau Chief for Global News here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. This obviously throws a wrench into the province's plans to build one and a half million homes in Ontario over the next 10 years. What is or what has been the response from the Ford government? Anything official yet? Well, when it comes to, uh, because the federal government hasn't acted, there hasn't been any kind of official response to that, right? But the province says any developer that's building uh, a house or a development within the Greenbelt lands, they have to be mindful of the species at risk and cannot damage their environment. I, I mean, most environmentalists would say, well, hang on, you can't really bring in a bunch of trucks, uh, you know, concrete and two by fours and all of that stuff into these lines and not disrupt the environment. And, and environmentalists point out that, you know, some of these species at risk, once you disrupt their environment, it's not as if they have another place in Ontario that they can go. Unfortunately, you know, the risk is that they are completely eliminated from Ontario's ecosystem. And some environmentalists say that makes Ontario's uh, ecosystem a little bit more um, simple, less complex. And it means that you don't have the birds eating on the insects and you have insects creating other problems. It, It obviously is a balance. So there is a lot more to be seen in terms of where this goes. But now we're all waiting to see what the federal government's next move is if they choose to step in like they did with Highway 413. Very interesting times ahead indeed. Colin, thank you for the time today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Colin DeMello is Queen's Park Bureau Chief at Global News, joining us here to talk about uh, a new wrench in this Greenbelt development plan from the provincial government. It sounds like at this point, if if the federal government goes through with uh, this you know, f- foray into the, the At-Risk Species Act, uh, it could really derail this whole house building plan. And wow, I mean, wow is the only word that comes to mind. It sounds like the province really didn't do its homework, which is funny because this is happening with Highway 413. Amazing stuff. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Not much uh, heat coming out of the uh, federal political world these days in terms of one party really surging ahead in the polls. Although the latest poll from Ipsos, conducted exclusively for Global News, does show that the federal conservatives have edged ahead once again in voter support if an election were held tomorrow. Daryl Bricker is the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs and joins us now on GMH. Daryl, good morning. Welcome back to the show. Well, thanks for having me back on. So what does your latest poll reveal? Well, it shows the uh, conservatives have moved ahead by five, which, by the way, uh, does represent something hot. Okay. (laughs) Because uh, um, they have not been this far ahead since the spring of 2019. So this is quite a move for them. So the question is whether or not it will endure, but... uh, but clearly, uh, you know, the, the dog days of summer are really dog days for the Liberals. What's interesting is the Liberals have 32% support, which is only one point lower than your last poll, what, four or five months ago, right. which, what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that they haven't been able to uh, to pick up anything since the last election campaign. So they're, since 2019, have pretty much uh, uh, fluctuated within that range, you know, a couple points higher, a couple points lower. They really haven't picked up. What's changed is the Conservatives have picked up. So they picked up 
a little bit of support from the NDP, a little bit of support from the Liberals, and a little bit of support from uh, kind of everybody else. But uh, there seems to be some consolidation around uh, around Polyev right now as the leader of the Conservative Party, as the alternative to the government. Much has been made about Pierre Polyev's likability, or, or maybe lack thereof. Uh, is that still a factor? Well, uh, you know, it, he, he is uh, not, a, 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 he's a new leader with high negatives. So people tend to have high awareness of him, but uh, the people who like him seem to like him. The people who don't like him really don't like him. Uh, so, uh, he, you know, he, he does have some issues in terms of uh, building his favorability with Canadians. But ultimately, the next election is going to be about what people think more about Justin Trudeau and his government and his performance than it is going to be about Pierre Polyev. It'll come down to if people think that the government is going to switch an evaluation of him, but we're not there yet. We're already hearing the term change election. This next election is a change election. And whether or not that leads to more seats for the Conservatives, because even the last election they had the popular vote in in their back pocket, but when it came to riding by riding, they just could not beat the Liberals. Is there any sense that they're making some gains in the ridings that count? Well, what we've seen in our most recent polling is that the, the Conservatives have moved up to tie, be tied with the Liberals in the province of Ontario, and that's really where it counts. So we know in any election campaign, the Liberals are probably going to be doing okay in Atlantic Canada and uh, doing better than okay in the province of Quebec. Then it comes down to how they perform in Ontario. So at the moment, uh, if an election were held tomorrow, be a, it would be a close-fought thing, even though the Conservatives have a five-point lead, but it'll come down to whether or not the Conservatives are able to deliver that uh, vote percentage that we're seeing currently in the polls on Election Day. And if they do, uh, there's a good chance that they could actually win the most seats. Now, whether they could form the government is another question, because uh, just as we see the NDP and the Liberals get together today in order to keep the Liberals in power, uh, the expectation is that uh, that the NDP would do the same thing, if the uh, even if the Conservatives won the most seats and, and the Liberals and the NDP, when you add them up, had more would probably try and govern as they're governing today. Speaking of the NDP, how are they doing? Uh, not well. Um, and, and this is uh, typical of what you see in, in junior partners in these, uh, in these types of coalitions. Uh, it, it, uh, they, you know, they, they can claim that they're having an influence on the government, but they tend to get lost and lose their independence as a result of, uh, of getting too closely aligned with the government. So it's difficult for them to present themselves as an alternative as they keep the as they keep the government uh, in power. We have a couple more minutes with Daryl Bricker, the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. We're talking about a new uh, poll from Ipsos conducted exclusively for Global News that shows the Conservatives have edged ahead in voter support ahead of the Liberals if a uh, federal election were to be held tomorrow. Are are many of the big issues making waves with potential voters? And I'm, I'm talking about, you know, foreign interference has been a big story. Paul Bernardo's uh, switch from maximum to medium security. Of course, the cost of living is, is still huge. Are those still the main factors that people are talking about? Yeah, focus on number three. Okay. <laughs> the, the, the cost of living. I mean, the uh, uh, foreign interference and, you know, the Paul Bernardo transfer certainly didn't do the government any favors. But uh, when, you, when you go out and you talk to the public about what they care about right now, it's basically the affordability of housing, cost of living, the future of health care, all issues in which when we ask people whether or not they think the government's doing a good job, they, they tend not to perform very well. Uh, people are feeling a lot of stress in their lives these days, uh, related particularly to you know, just the day-to-day things of getting by. Um, and as a result of that, um, the government's judged fairly harshly on those questions because Canadians are not in a good mood about these issues.
Well, and rightfully so. Yeah, those questions should be asked. As as some people are getting this grocery rebate today, I'm not sure that's going to sway their vote one way or another. Daryl, appreciate the time today as always. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Daryl Bricker is the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, and their latest polling done exclusively for Global News shows that the federal conservatives, led by Pierre Poiliev, have edged ahead in voter support once again of the federal liberals. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Last week on this show, the Hamilton Burlington SPCA asked CHML listeners to come up with some names for some new puppies that landed uh, on the doorstep of the SPCA. And today we're going to get an update on those pups and, more importantly, the update on the pet fostering situation at the SPCA. Heather Rojois is the Director of Fundraising and Communications at the Hamilton Burlington SPCA and joins us in studio this morning. Heather, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Did I butcher your last name? No, you said right, Bojois. Yeah, very good. Okay, A+. plus. All right, let's start with the new puppy. So uh, you were looking for some names. CHML listeners came up with some names. I'm sure you got a boatload of other suggestions as well. What are some of the names that people uh, came up with? Well, we kept with a theme. So I think that some of the uh, people had named them Spring and Summer. So we continued with the name Raindrop, Sunshine, Beach, and Flip Flop. Okay, those are pretty good. (laughs) Um, I remember Scott Radley had a suggestion of Mel. Mel did not do well in the poll. You know what? I I think we were keeping with the theme. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like the name Mel. Maybe maybe for a future pup. Well, there was Zamp too, which was really cute. But they, uh, yeah, they went with that. The... Finished in last place, I yeah. hear. No, it did not last. <laughs> not last. What's the update on the pet fostering situation? How many animals do you have? How many people do you need to say, hey, we wa- we would like to adopt? So right now, actually, I was speaking with Animal Care, and we are at the maximum that we've ever been at before. So we are caring for the most animals in our history. Um, on-site, off-site, in the community. So fostering helps us help more. So we need help with uh, short-term fostering, uh, which can sometimes be puppies, kittens, just to like get them socialized, get them ready to be adopted um, long-term. Sometimes we have animals that come into our care that have... Um, like heartworm, which is a long process to get the animals healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are long-term foster. We also need um, what we refer to as emergency. Um, those are situations when people come to us in need and they are like, whether they're going into the hospital or so they, they need help for, it's, emer- it's quick, but it's not necessarily long-term. Okay. And then we have what we refer to as our end-of-life um, sort of hospice fosters. Um, so these are animals that have been surrendered to us, um, are in not in good shape. We just want them to live out the best life for the rest that they have. Um, we supply all the food. We supply all of the medication for that animal um, just so that they can go out in peace and right. be loved. You said you're at an all-time high in terms of animals in your care. What does that number look like? Uh, so... So I think they lost count with the animals in our <laughs> shelter. For for the kittens, I should say, we have a whole bunch of kittens that sort of jump around. It's really fun to go down and watch them when you're just like, need a moment. And they just, so we, I think we're over 48 um, on site. Wow. But then, of course, we have more out. Um, we have a number of puppies, obviously. The uh, the six that came in, we also have another three. Um, and we, we receive surrenders every day. Uh, so that number just that we're looking for in fostering right now is over 150. Do we know what the reasoning for that is? Did, did people just adopt too many pets during the pandemic and now they're going to bring them back? Or what's the case? All kinds of reasons. I, I, it's, I don't think there's any just one reason. Um, the puppies, for example, that was an unwanted, unwanted litter. Uh, so the mom came to the mother, um, obviously, 
is owned. She had a litter of six. Mm-hmm. Um, the parent couldn't care for them, so they are in our care now. And the one's already been adopted. They're, oh, wow. all, all of them are on the website now, ready to go, and they're adorable. Um, but they're big. <laughs> they're going to be big. <laughs> what kind of dogs Just, are they? They are a King Corso Cross um, Bulldog. Okay. So which one has been adopted, you know? A summer. Okay. So summer's oh, off actually, the list. Actually, oh. I say summer, but it might have been spring. It's either summer or spring. Summer or spring off the list. Yeah. So flip-flop is still available. Flip-flop's still available. <laughs> <laughs> um, what makes a good foster family? What are some of the qualities that you're looking for in an individual or family that would make a good foster parent? Oh, so, I, so I'm not in animal care. So if I'm going to guess um, what the most important or if I'm going to make my suggestion, mm-hmm. um, you just need to be an animal person. You need to be loving, caring, um, but you also need to be able to help socialize these animals. Um, if they're puppies, obviously, you have to have a lot of energy. Yeah. Um, if you are um, taking on someone like an end of life, you just have to be, you know, a compassionate person. Um I think I think that's the most important piece, compassion. Certainly, having some room would help, especially if you're oh. you know adopting puppies that are going to get pretty big. Yeah, room in your home and room in your heart. Yeah. That's for sure. So yeah, I was a foster. Uh, what I would what I'm referred to now as a foster fail because we took an animal in um, in November just to get her through the Christmas because we didn't want her to be in the in the shelter on right. her own. And now she's on my couch, literally. <laughs> She's crashing the coach. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we've got about a minute to talk about fundraising efforts because this plays a big part in what you guys do. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we have, um, we're, we're always looking for help. Um, we have one of the programs that we just launched is something called, uh, referred to as the Kennel Guardian Program. Actually, Chorus is part of that program. Um, we're allowing people or asking people to support a kennel for the year. We have small and large kennels. Really excited because we're pretty much, we're over 60% sold out for the year. Hmm. Um, cost associated is um, what that money helps us care for the animals that are in that kennel throughout the year. Nice. And small kennels, you can have up to 50 animals throughout the year, like one a week, and the larger kennels, which are sort of like, you know, like the nurseries for the kittens or the puppies, um, that can be over 300 animals over the year. Um, before we go, what's the best way to get more information on these adoptable pets and to contribute maybe some fundraising dollars as well? Go to our website, www.hbspca.com. Um, there's an adoption page. That's where you would go for that. And then donate is on every every landing page that you would all right. Too. Great information. Adopt a uh, puppy or a kitten today at the Hamilton <laughs> Burlington SPCA. Heather, thanks for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Heather Vaujois in studio with us, the Director of Fundraising and Communications at the Hamilton Burlington SPCA. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. From food to attractions, and the question has arisen, and I'm sure you've asked this yourself when you're planning a day trip or two this summer, are our local attractions becoming too popular and, by extension, too expensive. So videos from last weekend show crowds all over Clifton Hill and Niagara Falls, including the road. I mean, the the street was stuffed with people. So producer Liz went the week prior to the Canada Day weekend and found that most of the meals she ate were near or over $100, and her hotel for two nights was close to $1,000. Here's what she had to say. So we normally plan a weekend getaway uh, once a year. And I knew that this year it was going to be between $500 to $1,000. And I knew inflation was always going to play a role. And knowing what we wanted to do, we wanted to stay at our favorite hotel. And there's a fancy restaurant that we like going to. I knew our cost was going to be in that $500 to $1,000 range. But to increase our getaway from one night to two nights, our hotel jumped from $200 for the one night to almost $900. 
um the fancy restaurant even the cost there went up it, like la the year prior when we had gone it was closer to 180 this year it was almost 300 dollars um one meal of just a burger and a plate of wings was 106 like with how much we actually spent like we could have gone to like another part of the country or even gone down to a different country um it was just a lot and it was very expensive so there is producer liz yeah seeing the dollars evaporate from her bank account after visiting Niagara Falls. That's a pretty expensive couple of days. Kaylee Elaine is an editor, journalist, and media consultant and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Kaylee, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm okay. My guess is Liz is not alone in her despair when it comes to spending a lot of money on what should be a quick and relatively, you would think, affordable trip to Niagara Falls. Oh, she's not alone. A lot of the Ontario hotels are seeing the demand this summer and the prices are up, which is great for the tourism industry, hard for our bank accounts and our wallets. So this is a supply and demand thing? This is a supply and demand thing. You know, the way hotels work is their price fluctuates based on demand and based on bookings. So if there's a high level of occupancy, if people are booking it quickly and booking for, you know, peak weekends, they're going to up their price because they know that people are going to pay it, unfortunately. I've heard two schools of thought, especially when booking hotels and, and flights uh, as well in this conversation is some people like to do it well in advance because they're looking at the cost at that time and, and, and think this is the cheapest it's ever going to get. Others wait till the last minute to get those last minute deals. Is there a right or wrong in either of those approaches? You know, it either kind of works. I think it depends on how married you are to a certain destination. If you have a bit of flexibility, then maybe last minute will work best for you because then you can price compare at the last minute. And there's a lot of apps and websites that kind of give you those last minute uh, deals. Whereas if you are, you know, really set on a certain location, a certain destination, then you might want to book earlier to ensure that you get a great price or at least you're comfortable with the price that you're booking. So what are the hot destinations right now that might bend your bank account? Yeah, so in the summer and when we're looking in Ontario, it's kind of those, you know, the usual suspects. Muskoka, Collingwood, Niagara are always going to be a little bit more expensive. We're seeing a lot of travelers going to small towns like Alora, so their prices are going up. And you're just seeing an, an increase of price overall in terms of those, like, you know, commonly searched destinations. But if you want to save a little bit of money, maybe look at a small town that isn't <laughs> as touristy or might not be as built up, but will be just as beautiful. Do you have any hidden gems in that regard? You know, sites or, or places where people love to go, but not many people are going. So they have those costs that are relatively affordable. Yeah, you know, I always find the Kawarthas are a little bit uh, more affordable compared to Muskoka. And they give you that lakeside charm. Um, when you're looking for something that's, you know, more of a, a waterfront town, Port Dover is great and you don't get as many tourists there. Um, but I'm sure that number will rise now that we're talking about it. You know, going a little bit off the beaten path, if you're usually going to Prince Edward County or uh, Niagara for the wine regions, Keeley Island also has wine. So there's a ton in Ontario that it's still drivable. And if you kind of look a little bit um, out of the box, you might be able to get a better price. Great tips from Kelly Elaine. Kelly, thanks for joining us this morning. 
Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Kelly Lane is an editor, journalist, media consultant, as you can tell, a travel expert as well. Supply and demand getting us again. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.